Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by the, this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Good morning. How is that was a that was one of the best ones ever. How's everybody doing? I oh, thank you, Doug. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I I so rarely miss a Sunday morning. Being out last Sunday, it feels like I've been gone for months. So it's good to be back. I I had the opportunity or was asked to preach over at Crossway, our sister Acts 29 church, because their pastor Matt is on sabbatical. So it was wonderful to be able to serve him. And whenever I go somewhere else, it makes me so thankful to be here. So love worshiping with you all, especially with these shiny new floors, right? I mean, the foyer was amazing, but little more room to spread out and breathe. So uh, thank you again for your patience as we kind of struggled through that mildly together. Uh, so let's pray and we'll dive in. Father God, it is good to worship you this morning. It's good to be back in this gym. God, thank you for this space and this community that's been so flexible and patient through this process. God, it's such a joy to worship with so many people who are not showing up on Sunday morning looking for comfort and amenities but who come to worship you together. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would increase our faith, that you would grow us uh, in this love that is so evident already among this people, God, that you might be glorified through the way we live out our faith together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, four months in the book of Galatians, and we are closing it out today, and you've done well. It's just been some rough stuff. It's a little repetitive, but we're going to be moving into Philippians in a couple weeks, and that's just super joyful. So it's going to be exciting, but if you can kind of imagine with me Paul writing this letter, uh, 
He's, he's probably sitting in a chair, probably not as nice as these, or maybe reclining on a couch, dictating this whole letter to someone. He's just sitting there talking out, lo- out loud as this scribe meticulously writes down each and every word that he says. And as we get to this part in the letter, Paul kind of gets up and he's like, hey, bro, hold on, hand me the pen, right? I'm going to close this thing out. And, and he really does that in most of his letters. He'll say right at the end, I'm writing this greeting with my own hand. And in 2 Thessalonians, he says, I do this so you know it's really me. But here in this letter, he's got more to say. It's like, hey, I'm done. You know, it's like uh, when John preaches, he's like, it's almost done. And then he's like, but I got some more. So, sorry, John, it was too easy. That's not in the notes. I just made that up right like that. So that's what's going on here with Paul. We read in verse 11, see with what large letters I'm writing you with my own hand. So it's not the scribe anymore. This is me. I'm writing with my own hand and I'm writing big. Like if we were to underline something or put it in bold, Paul's like, don't miss this message. These Judaizers are all about the flesh. They want to make a good showing in the flesh, Paul says. They want to look righteous on the outside. And they're trying to drag you down with them. But don't be fooled. Their real intention, the the motivation behind their teaching, as we read in verse 12, is that they're simply trying to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. They're trying to avoid persecution. And this is definitely not lost in 21st century Christianity, right? They preferred the easy life. They preferred the comfortable life. A life where you can just convince yourself that good works and law-abiding is enough to be justified. Because they had seen the persecution that had come with following Jesus. They'd seen it firsthand. They'd seen the struggles of true Christian faith. Laying down your life for others, standing firm on the word of God, suffering for the gospel, dying to self. They'd seen where that life could lead. Checking religious boxes and feeling justified in your good works is far easier than laying your life down for others, than picking up your cross and following Jesus. And being a good person is far more palatable to the world than proclaiming a savior who died because we were condemned in our sin. That doesn't sell well. And in order to affirm their lunacy, these false teachers needed people to follow them. They needed to be justified by having people agree with them and listen to them and imitate them. They were pitching all of this false teaching as if it were helping the Galatians, helping the people. But the reality was that it was the people's following that was justifying their own absurdity. As Paul says in verse 13, even these circumcised jokers, that's a paraphrase, who are pushing the law, they don't even keep the law. They can't keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they might boast in your flesh, that they boast in your following. And this is the case with all false teachers. 
It is the followers that validate their existence. The followers ignorantly thinking that they're being fed or actually feeding the hubris and the pride of those who they follow. And what we've seen throughout this letter is that what these Judaizers were teaching was gospel anemic heresy. It was a lie. It was salvation based on works. It was a rejection of Jesus. It was a claim that the sacrifice of Christ was insufficient to save. That we have to do something. That circumcision and obedience to the law were essential for salvation. But as we read back in chapter 2, verse 21, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And there's no middle ground here. It's so important that we understand that if there's any ounce of our works or our merit required for salvation, then the sacrifice of Christ is nullified. We are saying that what he did on the cross was insufficient to save. And I know we're all there cerebrally, right? We get that. But functionally, practically, how often do we try to do things to make ourselves feel better or to justify ourselves? How often do we look at our past sins and stew in guilt or shame over those things? How often do we look at our current sins and struggles and think more about our attempts to make up for them? Or about the shame that we feel rather than looking to Christ? Looking to the reality that every sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for at the cross. This is what Paul was getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10, when he said, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. This is a huge verse, right? Godly grief, that is when we sin or fall short or we fail, that grief over our sin must move us to repentance. It must move us to look to Jesus who has paid for that sin. And we must turn and trust once again over and over. This is the path to experiencing life in Christ. To experiencing salvation without regret as this verse says. But worldly grief, stewing in our failure, beating ourselves up, or trying to atone for our own sin through good works, produces death. Death. Because it is a rejection of the gospel when we cling to the guilt over our sin that Christ has already paid for. It is this implicit proclamation that Christ's sacrifice was insufficient. We need to do something to help that out. And so true faith, living a repentant life with our eyes fixed on Jesus, that's not easy. It's hard because our prideful flesh is a monster. It is averse to the spirit that resides in us. It's constantly speaking lies and deception like you will never be enough. You will never be loved. 
Your sin is far too deep, far too ugly to be accepted by God, to be accepted by anyone for that matter. And these Judaizers were speaking the language of the flesh. They were giving the answers that our flesh wants when we feel like we need to justify ourselves, do better, work harder. Here are the rules. Check the boxes. Do the actions and you'll be good with God. Keep protecting this image that your flesh is defending. Keep scrubbing your whitewashed tomb. And yet no matter how much you do or act or follow the rules, that peace never comes. The satisfaction never comes. Because we can't follow perfectly. Sin is always crouching at the door. We can never be released from the guilt and the shame if it is dependent upon our actions. It's impossible. It's like opening a family-sized bag of brownie M&Ms. Fudge brownie M&Ms. If you add them, they will change your life. (laughs) These things, they're amazing. They scream satisfaction. They basically promise it. The little M&Ms on the front are so happy, even though they're about to be eaten. That's how happy they are. And so if you eat a few, you're like, yeah, this is true life and joy. This is what I was made for. But the moment you eat a few, you, you want more. And then more. And then you eat more. And there's never really this moment where you arrive at the satisfaction. You just keep eating until you realize in the end you're worse off than when you began. What you thought was going to bring satisfaction has only left you sick and unsatisfied. And that is life trying to be justified by works. Initially, having a game plan and having these boxes to check feels pretty good. There are tangible goals, and we can do these things and feel good. But what happens is, in the long run, as we've read in this letter, that very law that we're clinging to, thinking it will bring life, only brings condemnation. Because once again, we can never be good enough. We can never be righteous enough. That peace and satisfaction is perpetually elusive. It is only the countercultural foolishness of the cross that can satisfy the deep longing of the human soul. That's it. It's only when we lose our life we will find it. And to believe this will require us to push back against every inclination of our flesh, which only desires to justify itself. It will require us to push back against the torrents of worldly wisdom that says true life and joy will be found inside you, deep down through your own effort and your own achievement and your own self-actualization. It will require us to look at the cross, this symbol of a king who died, of a God who laid down his life. It is absurdity to the wisdom of the world. 
And it is our source of hope. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this is the dichotomy between the believing and unbelieving world. Between the flesh and the spirit. Between the Judaizer's message and the true gospel. The cross of Christ is either folly or it's the power of God. We will either boast in our flesh, in our achievements, in our knowledge, in our followers, in the kingdom that we're building, or we will boast in the cross. Paul says in verse 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And listen, the cross is offensive. It's a stumbling block to the world. Because the cross tells us some very unpalatable truths about ourselves. Namely, we are sinners under the righteous curse of God's law. And we can't save ourselves. Christ bore our sin. He bore the curse precisely because we could not gain release from them. There was no other way. If we could have been forgiven through our own good works by being circumcised and keeping the law, there would have been no need for the cross. When we look at the cross, it's as though Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing. Your curse I'm suffering. Your debt I'm paying. Your death that I'm dying. See, no one stands proudly on their own merit before the cross of Jesus. It's just impossible. They either reject the cross, deny what Jesus was doing on the cross, or they humble themselves before a God who purchased their redemption. Because there is nothing in history or in the universe that cuts us down to size like the cross of Jesus. Nothing in all creation is more humbling than the reality that our God and King humbled himself even unto death on a cross to save us. Because we could not save ourselves. No matter how hard we tried. No matter how righteous we were. Only the death of Jesus could offer the life and the freedom that we desire. And the flesh hates that. It hates it. Our flesh resents the humiliation of seeing ourselves as God sees us. As we really are. Helpless. Hopeless. Unable to save ourselves. See, the comfortable illusions of performance and self-righteousness are far more palatable to the flesh. And so false teachers then and now try to construct a Christianity without the cross. A Christianity that has man at the center, as the pinnacle, with their works as the means to salvation. 
Because at all cost, they want to avoid the wounds that the cross afflicts on the pride of man. And this sums up the error of the Judaizers and so many false teachers in our day. They want a Christianity. They want a Jesus without the cross. They want a Christianity where they are the point. Where they're at the center of all that God is doing. And they're in control of their own lives. But that's just simply not the gospel. It's just not. These anti-gospel false teachers want to boast in the flesh. They're putting forward a lie that salvation can be attained by rejecting the cross and trying to fulfill the law. Trying to be righteous. To which Paul says the cross is everything. And if you miss the cross, you miss everything. And here's the beauty of the cross. It's at the same time a symbol of our weakness as well as the power of God at work in all who believe. This is why Paul boasts in the cross just like he boasts in his own weakness. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul is pleading with the Lord to remove this thorn from his flesh. And God's like, no, not going to do it. Right? And if Paul prays for something and he doesn't get what he wants, like, okay, there's a lesson here somewhere, right? He's praying and and God basically says, that's there for your good. Because your flesh is, is not good. Right? You would be conceited if I didn't hobble you a little bit. And so God's like, no, I'm not going to take this thorn away. And then the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Wow. And this is the message of the cross. It is our weakness met with the supernatural power of God. That is, his power becomes our power when we embrace the reality of our own weakness. When we humble ourselves before God and give up our illusions of power, give up our illusions of being able to justify ourselves by our own actions, give up our illusions that we can navigate this life on our own. God says the work is done. I've I've done it for you. All you have to do is believe. Let go of your success and let go of your failures. You're neither defined by your best moments or your worst. When you trust in me, you are a child of the living God. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. To which Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's crazy. Crazy awesome, right? Could there be any more countercultural message than that? Anything more opposite to our fleshly desire? These false teachers were boasting in their own flesh. 
They were saying, follow us so we can boast in yours too. And Paul's like, you've, you've missed it. That's not the gospel. I know it makes sense in the wisdom of the world. I know the allure of achievement makes sense. There's this desire to make something of yourself. But here's the thing. Weakness is the way of God's kingdom. Weakness is the way of God's people. That's why the gospel is so offensive. Because you can't save you. You're not the point. And the Bible is not a story about you or me. It's a story about God, about his plan of redemption, his covenant faithfulness, his surpassing love for a people who rejected him time and again. That is the beauty of the gospel in our weakness, in our failure, in our inability to be righteous. Even in our rebellion against God, God says, I chose you. I love you. I'm going to make a way for you to be in my presence. I'm going to send my son to die for you to carry your shame and guilt and the punishment that you deserve. Because I'm building an eternal family. And I'm going to wipe away every sin and every tear and every heartache. And you will be with me forever. This is what God is doing. This is what's promised through the gospel. And this is why Paul is so vehemently pushing back against these false teachers. Why would you try to earn God's favor? It's impossible. The work has already been done. Salvation has been accomplished. All we have to do is believe. Paul says, look at the cross. Boast in the cross. Stop stewing in, in guilt over these past sins. I've paid for those. Believe in the grace that is yours. Stop fighting to make a name for yourself or to defend yourself. You're a child of God. Your identity is no longer found in what you do or what you did and what you achieved or what you failed. You are mine, God says. Trust in me. Rest in me. Believe in me. And Paul says in verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a, but a new creation. But a new creation. It's not what you do, it's not what you don't do that defines you. You are a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, we have not just been reconciled to God, epically huge, but we have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We have been commissioned as heralds of this countercultural gospel of a God who died, 
of a king who laid down his life for his people, of a cross meant to be a symbol of shame and condemnation transformed into the only thing worth boasting in this life. The symbol of both our weakness and the divine power that is ours through the saving, redeeming, sanctifying work of Jesus. As I said a few weeks ago, all of these wonderful gospel truths are not just a proclamation that we've been set free from something, but we have been set free to something. We can now live without fear or shame or condemnation. Our identity and purpose are secure in Christ. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We have been set free from the bondage to sin and death. And we've been set free to walk in the obedience that comes from faith. To walk in obedience. In a letter where Paul time and again pushes back against justification through the law or through our actions, the point was never that the law is bad or that actions are useless. The law, Paul said back in chapter 5, is love, right? Jesus sums up the law with love. And the obedience you've been called to isn't to gain God's favor, but rather it is the fruit of a life that loves Jesus above all else. It is the new creation reality. The, the, the simple misunderstanding of these false teachers that completely rendered the gospel void was this. Salvation is not a product of obedience. But rather, obedience is the product of salvation. Obedience is the fruit of salvation, of a new heart, of what Christ has done in us and is doing in us through the Spirit. We have been set free in Christ, empowered by the Spirit and sent out by the Father to walk in obedience, to exhibit the love that we first experienced from God without any fear of condemnation. We've been set free to love and serve and pour ourselves out for the glory of God and the good of others, knowing that nothing can tear us from the hands of our loving Father. As we boast in the cross of Jesus as our only hope, knowing that our weakness is the conduit to the power of God being perfected in us. So let us boast in the cross and Boast in our weakness as we trust in the sufficiency of Jesus so that the power of God might rest upon us. Let's pray. Father God, this is our prayer. That you would make us a people who boast in the cross. people who embrace our weakness and our need of a righteousness that we cannot produce on our own. And that we would have tremendous confidence in the fullness of what Christ has done. It's both a proclamation of our need 
and I trust in the supernatural power that is promised through faith. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the grace. And we ask that you would increase our faith day after day. That this community might reflect your glory and love into a world in such need of you. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.